The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 10, The Man in the White Suit. In 2005, protesters from the group Thong, or Topless Humans Organized for Natural Genetics, paraded outside the Eddie Bauer store in Chicago. They were protesting a relatively new line of merchandise being offered by the store, nanopants. It was never quite clear why the protesters were topless, although it did make the event memorable. But it did allow a crude but clever appropriation of the title of a 1959 lecture given by the physicist Richard Feynman. At least one of the protesters had an arrow drawn on their back pointing to their nether regions along with the title of Feynman's talk. There's plenty of room at the bottom. Eddie Bauer's nanopants used nanotex, a nanoscale fabric coating that made the pants water-repellent and stain-resistant. By enveloping each fibre with a nanoscopically thin layer of water-repellent molecules, the nanopants took on the seemingly miraculous ability to shed water, coffee, wine, ketchup, and many other things that people tend to inadvertently spill on themselves without leaving a stain. It was a great technology for the congenitally messy, but because it was marketed as being a product of nanotechnology, there were concerns in some quarters, including the Thong protesters, that putting such a cutting-edge technology in consumer products might lead to new, unexpected, and potentially catastrophic risks. Sadly for Thong, the 2005 protest failed spectacularly. Rather than consumers being warned off Eddie Bauer's nanopants, there was an uptick in sales, probably because for most people, the benefits of avoiding brown coffee stains were rather more attractive than speculative worries about a dystopian nano future. And to be honest, the chances of the technology, which in reality wasn't that radical, leading to substantial harm were pretty negligible. The nanopants incident was, in some ways, a preemptive parody of transcendence, with the existential threat of nanobots being replaced with stain-resistant clothing, and the neo-Luddites trying to save the world being played by a bunch of topless protesters. Yet both the protest and the technology touched on the often mundane reality of modern nanotechnology and the complex ways in which seemingly beneficial inventions can sometimes threaten the status quo. As if to support the theory that there's nothing new under the sun, the 1951 movie The Man in the White Suit in turn foreshadowed both the technology and the concerns that played out in that 2005 Chicago protest. The Man in the White Suit was made in 1951 and is remarkably a movie about stain-resistant pants. But more than this, it's a movie about the pitfalls of blinkered science and socially unaware innovation. And while it's not a movie about nanotechnology per se, it is remarkably prescient in how it foreshadows the complex social and economic dynamics around nanotechnology and advanced materials more generally. 
The movie is set in the textile mills of the early to mid-1900s north of England. This was a time when the burgeoning science of chemical synthesis was leading to a revolution in artificial textiles. Nylon, draylon, and other man-made materials were becoming increasingly important commodities, and ones that were emerging from what was then cutting-edge science. Spurred on by these advances, mill owners continued to search for new materials that would give them an edge in a highly competitive market. These textile mills were rooted in an industrial revolution that had started nearly 200 years earlier, yet they marked a tipping point from using try-it-and-see engineering in manufacturing to relying on predictive science in the development of new products. In the early days of the Industrial Revolution, there was what would now seem like a remarkable separation between the academic world of science and the more practically oriented world of engineering. Innovators in the Industrial Revolution largely learned by trial and error, and relied heavily on the art and craft of engineering. Human ingenuity and inventiveness enabled new discoveries to be translated into powerful and practical new technologies, yet rigorous scientific research was not typically a large part of this. In the late 19th and early 20th century, though, it became apparent that by using a more scientific methodology based on predictive laws, models, and associations, companies could make breakthroughs that far exceeded the limitations of invention by mere trial and error. At the same time, the social legacy of the Luddite movement was still alive and kicking in the north of England, and there was a strong labour movement that doggedly strove to protect the rights of workers and ensure that new technologies didn't sweep jobs and people aside quite as indiscriminately as it had done a century or so earlier. Against this backdrop, the man in the white suit introduces us to Sidney Stratton, played by Alec Guinness, a self-absorbed chemist who is convinced he has the key to an amazing new fabric and simply needs the space and equipment to test and develop his theories. Stratton could have had a glitter career at a top university, but he was shunned by his academic colleagues for his radical and obsessive ideas. So instead, he insinuates himself into an industrial lab where he can carry out his research with relatively little interference. Everything goes swimmingly until the owner of the factory he's working at starts to ask awkward questions. Stratton is something of a lone genius. He despises the lack of imagination he sees in his more conventionally-minded and institutionalised colleagues and prefers to work on his own. His strategy of carving out some personal space in an industrial lab seems to be working until it's realised that no one can explain exactly what it is he's doing and why his research is costing the company so much. As his proclivity for spending company resources on unfathomable research is discovered, Stratton is dismissed. But intent on pursuing his science, he gets a job at a competing firm, not as a scientist, but as a porter. From here, he finds a way to secretly conduct his research in the company's lab. At this point, we're introduced to Bertha, a union rep who assumes Stratton is a labourer like herself, and who is fiercely committed to protecting his labour rights as a result. As Stratton works at his double life, the lab takes delivery of a smart new electron microscope. While the rest of the scientists are struggling to make sense of this complex piece of equipment, Stratton can't resist showing off and explaining how to use it. 
As a result, he's mistaken for an expert from the electron microscope supplier and is taken on by the textile company to run the instrument. And in the process, he gets full and unfettered access to the lab. Stratton's double life as a labourer and as an illicit lab scientist works out rather well for him, despite Bertha's suspicions that the management are taking advantage of him. That is, until he is recognised as the formerly disgraced scientist by the company director's daughter, Daphne. Worried that Sidney's up to his old tricks of spending the company profits on indecipherable experiments, she rushes to inform her father, but before she gets to him, Sidney manages to persuade her that he's onto something. Intrigued, Daphne reads up on her chemistry and realises that he could be right. Daphne allows Sidney to continue his work, and with her support, he successfully synthesizes the material he's been striving for, a super-strong synthetic thread that never wears out and never gets dirty. In Stratton's scientist brain, the breakthrough is going to transform the world. He assumes that people are sick of washing, mending and replacing their clothes, and that his invention will liberate them. He dreams of a future where you only need to buy one set of clothes, ever. In Stratton's head, what's good for him is also good for everyone. And a world without the messiness of buying, washing and looking after clothes is definitely one that he's excited about. But there's a problem, several as it turns out. And one of the biggest is that Sidney never thought to ask anyone else what they wanted or needed. Stratton is so excited by his discovery that he rushes to the company director Alan Burnley's home to give him the good news. What he doesn't know is that Burnley has just learned that Stratton has been blowing through the company's R&D budget. Burnley refuses to listen to Stratton and instead sacks him. However, Daphne points out that her father has just waved goodbye to one of the biggest discoveries ever made in the textile world, and Stratton is persuaded to come back and work for him. In the meantime, word of the discovery has leaked out and everything begins to fall apart. While Burnley is fixated on the short-term profits he's going to make off Stratton's invention, others in the textile industry realise that this is not going to end well. They need their products to wear out and need replacing if they're to stay in business, and the very last thing they need is clothes that last forever. So they hatch a plan to persuade Stratton to sign over the rights to his invention so they can bury it. To make matters worse, it quickly becomes apparent that the mill owners and their investors aren't the only ones who stand to lose from Sydney's invention. If the industry collapses because of his new textile, the workforce could be out on the streets. And so, in a Luddite-like wave of self-interest, they also set about challenging Sydney, not because they are anti-science, but because they are pro-having jobs that pay the bills. The more people hear about Stratton's invention, the more they realise that this seemingly great discovery is going to make life harder for them. Even Sydney's landlady plaintively asks, Why can't you scientists leave things alone? What about my bit of washing when there's no washing to do? In his naivety, it becomes clear that Stratton didn't give a second thought to the people he claimed he was doing his research for, and as a result, he hits roadblocks he never imagined existed. 
As everything comes to a head, Stratton finds himself in his white suit, made of the new indestructible, unstainable cloth, being chased by manufacturers, labourers, colleagues, pretty much everyone else who has realised that what they really cannot abide is a smart-ass scientist who didn't think to talk to them before doing the research he claimed was for their own good. Just as he's cornered by the mob, Sidney discovers the full extent of his hubris. Far from being indestructible, his new fabric has a fatal flaw. His wonder material is unstable, and after a few days, it begins to disintegrate. And so, in front of the crowd, his clothes begin to quite literally fall apart. Scientific hubris turns to humility and ridicule, and everyone but Stratton leaves secure in the knowledge that, clever as they might be, scientists like Sidney are, at the end of the day, not particularly smart. And Stratton, his pride is dented, but not his ambition, nor his scientific myopia, it would seem. In an admirable display of disdain for learning the lessons of his social failures, he begins to work on fixing the science he got wrong in his quest to create the perfect fabric. The man in the white suit admittedly feels a little dated these days, and even by 1950s British comedy standards, it is dry. Yet the movie successfully manages to address some of the biggest challenges we face in developing socially responsible and responsive technologies, including institutional narrow-mindedness, scientific myopia and hubris, ignorance over the broader social implications, human greed and self-interest, and the inevitability of unintended outcomes. And of course, it's remarkably prescient of Eddie Bauer's nanopants and the protests they inspired. And while the movie uses polymer chemistry as its driving technology, much of it applies directly to the emerging science of nanoscale design and engineering that led to the nanopants and a myriad other nanotechnology-based products. On December the 29th, 1959, the physicist Richard Feynman gave a talk at the annual meeting of the American Physical Society, which was held that year at the California Institute of Technology. In his opening comments, Feynman noted, and I quote, I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done in principle. This field is not quite the same as others, in that it will not tell as much of fundamental physics in the sense of what are the strange particles, but it is more like solid-state physics in the sense that it might tell us much of great interest about the strange phenomena that occur in complex situations. Furthermore, a point that is most important is that it would have an enormous number of technical applications. What I want to talk about is the problem of manipulating and controlling things on a small scale. Feynman was intrigued with what could be achieved if we could only manipulate matter at the scale of individual atoms and molecules. At the time, he was convinced that scientists and engineers had barely scratched the surface of what was possible here, so much so that he offered a $1,000 prize for the first person to work out how to write a page of a book in a type so minuscule it was at a 1 to 25,000th scale. Feynman's talk 
didn't garner that much attention at first, but over the following decades, it was increasingly seen as a milestone in thinking about what could be achieved if we extended our engineering mastery to the nanometer scale of atoms and molecules. In 1986, Eric Drexler took this up in his book Engines of Creation and popularized the term nanotechnology. Yet it wasn't until the 1990s when the US government became involved that the emerging field of nanotechnology hit the big time. What intrigued Feynman, Drexler and the scientists that followed them was the potential of engineering with the finest building blocks available, the atoms and molecules that everything is made of, the base code of physical materials in the language of chapter 9. As well as the finesse achievable with atomic scale engineering, scientists were becoming increasingly excited by some of the more unusual properties that matter exhibits at the nanoscale, including changes in conductivity and magnetism, and a whole range of unusual optical behaviours. What they saw was an exciting new set of ways they could play with this code of atoms to make new materials and products. In the 1980s, this emerging vision was very much in line with Drexler's ideas, but in the 1990s there was an abrupt change in direction and expectations, and it occurred at about the time the US federal government made the decision to invest heavily in nanotechnology. In the 1990s, biomedical science in the US was undergoing something of a renaissance, and federal funding was flowing freely into the US's premier biomedical research agency, the National Institutes of Health. This influx of research funding was so prominent that scientists at the National Science Foundation, NIH's sister agency, worried that their agency was in danger of being marginalized. What they needed was a big idea. One big enough to sell to Congress and the President as being worthy of a massive injection of research dollars. Building on the thinking of Weinmann, Drexler and others, the NSF began to develop the concept of nanotechnology as something they could sell to policymakers. It was a smart move and one that was made all the smarter by the decision to conceive of this as a cross-agency initiative. Smarter still was the idea to pitch nanotechnology as a truly interdisciplinary endeavour that wove together emerging advances in physics, chemistry and biology, and that had something for everyone in it. What emerged was a technological platform that large numbers of researchers could align their work with in some way, that had a futuristic feel, and that was backed by scientific and business heavyweights. At the heart of this platform was the promise that by shaping the world atom by atom, we could redefine our future and usher in the next industrial revolution. This particular framing of nanotechnology caught on, buoyed up by the claims that the future of US jobs and economic prosperity depended on investing in it. In 2000, President Clinton formed the US National Nanotechnology Initiative, a cross-agency initiative that continues to oversee billions of dollars of federal research and development investment in nanotechnology. Eighteen years later, the NNI is still going strong. As an initiative, it has supported some incredible advances in nanoscale science and engineering, and it has led to the growth of nanotechnology the world over. Yet despite the NNI's success, it has not delivered on what Eric Drexler and a number of others originally had in mind. Early on, there was a sharp and bitter split between Drexler and those who became proponents of mainstream nanotechnology, as Drexler's vision of atomically precise manufacturing 
was replaced by more mundane visions of nanoscale material science. With hindsight, this isn't too surprising. Drexler's ideas were bold and revolutionary, and definitely not broadly inclusive of existing research and development. In contrast, because mainstream nanotechnology became a convenient way of repackaging existing trends in science and engineering, it was accessible to a wide range of researchers. Regardless of whether you were a material scientist, a colloid chemist, an electron microscopist, a molecular biologist, or even a toxicologist, you could with little effort rebrand yourself as a nanotechnologist. Yet, despite the excitement and the hype and some rather transcendence-like speculation, what has come to be known as nanotechnology actually has its roots in early 20th century breakthroughs. In 1911, the physicist Ernest Rutherford proposed a novel model of the atom. Drawing on groundbreaking experiments from a couple of years earlier, Rutherford's model revolutionised our understanding of atoms and underpinned a growing understanding of not only how atoms and molecules come together to make materials, but how their specific arrangements affect the properties of those materials. Building on Rutherford's work, scientists began to develop increasingly sophisticated ways to map out the atomic composition and structure of materials. In 1912, it was discovered that the regular arrangements of atoms in crystalline materials could diffract X-rays in ways that allowed their structure to be deduced. In 1931, the first electron microscope was constructed. By the 1950s, scientists like Rosalind Franklin were using X-rays to determine the atomic structure of biological molecules. This early work on the atomic and molecular makeup of materials laid the foundation for the discovery of DNA's structure, the emergence of transistors and integrated circuits, and the growing field of material science. It was a heady period of discovery, spurred on by the realisation that atoms and how they're arranged are the key to how materials behave. By the time Feynman gave his lecture in 1959, scientists were well on the way to understanding how the precise arrangements of atoms in a material determines what properties it might exhibit. What they weren't so good at was using this emerging knowledge to design and engineer new materials. They were beginning to understand how things worked at the nanoscale, but they still lacked the tools and the engineering dexterity to take advantage of this knowledge. This is not to say that there weren't advances being made in nanoscale engineering at the time. There were. The emergence of increasingly sophisticated synthetic chemicals, for instance, depended critically on scientists being able to form new molecules by arranging the atoms they were made of in precise ways. And in the early 1900s, scientists were creating a growing arsenal of new chemicals. At the same time, scientists and engineers were getting better at making smaller and smaller particles, and using some of the convenient properties that come with smallness, like adding strength to composite materials and preventing powders from caking. By the 1950s, companies were intentionally manufacturing a range of nanometer-scale powders out of materials like silicon dioxide and carbon. As the decades moved on, material scientists became increasingly adept at manufacturing nanoscopically small particles with precisely designed properties, especially in the area of catalysts. 
Catalysts work by increasing the speed and likelihood of specific chemical reactions taking place while reducing the energy needed to initiate them. From the early 1900s, using fine particles as catalysts, so-called heterogeneous catalysts, became increasingly important in industry as they slashed the costs and energy overheads of chemical processing. Because catalytic reactions occur at the surface of these particles, the smaller the particles, the more overall surface area there is for reactions to take place on, and the more effective the catalyst is. This led to increasing interest in creating nanometer-scale catalytic particles. But there was another advantage to using microscopically small particles in this way. When particles get so small that they're made of only a few hundred or a few thousand atoms, the precise arrangement of the atoms in them can lead to unexpected behaviours. For instance, some particles that aren't catalytic at larger sizes become catalytic at the nanoscale. Other particles interact with light differently. Gold particles, for instance, appear red below a certain size. Others still can flip from being extremely inert to being highly reactive. As scientists began to understand how particle size changes material behaviour, they began developing increasingly sophisticated particle-based catalysts that were designed to speed up reactions and help produce specific industrial chemicals. But they also began to understand how the precise atomic configuration of everything around us affects the properties of materials and can in principle be used to design how materials behave. This realisation led to the field of material science growing rapidly in the 1970s and the emergence of novel electronic components, integrated circuits, computer chips, hard drives and pretty much every piece of digital gadgetry we now rely on. It also paved the way for the specific formulation of nanotechnology adopted by the US government and by governments and scientists around the world. In this way, the NNI successfully rebranded a trend in science and engineering and technology that stretched back nearly 100 years. And because so many people were already invested in research and development involving atoms and molecules, they simply had to attach the term nanotechnology to their work and watch the dollars flow. This tactic was so successful that some years ago a colleague of mine cynically referred to nanotechnology as a 14-letter fast-track to funding. Despite the cynicism, brand nanotechnology has been phenomenally successful in encouraging interdisciplinary research and development, generating new knowledge and inspiring a new generation of scientists and engineers. It's also opened the way to combining atomic-scale design and engineering with breakthroughs in biological and cyber sciences, and in doing so, it has stimulated technological advances at the convergence of these areas. But brand nanotechnology is most definitely not what was envisaged by Eric Drexler in the 1980s. The divergence between Drexler's vision of nanotechnology and today's mainstream ideas goes back to the 1990s in a widely publicised clash of opinions between Drexler and chemist Richard Smalley. Where Drexler was a visionary 
Smalley was a pragmatist. More than this, as the co-discoverer of the carbon-60 molecule for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1996 along with Robert Curl and Harry Croteau, and the developer of carbon nanotubes, a highly novel nanoscale form of carbon, he held considerable sway within established scientific circles. As the US government's concept of nanotechnology began to take form, it was Smalley's vision that won out, and Drexler's version that ended up being sidelined. Because of this, the nanoscale science and engineering of today looks far more like the technology in The Man in the White Suit than the nanobox in Transcendence. Yet despite the hype behind brand nano, nanoscale science and engineering is continuing to open up tremendous opportunities and not just in the area of stain-resistant fabrics. By precisely designing and engineering complex multifunctional particles, scientists are developing new ways to design and deliver powerful new cancer treatments. Nanoscale engineering is leading to batteries that hold more energy per gram of material and release it faster than any previous battery technology. Nanomaterials are leading to better solar cells, faster electronics, and more powerful computers. Scientists are even programming DNA to create new nanomaterials. Hyperside, we are learning to master the material world and become adept in coding in the language of atoms and molecules. But just as with Stratton's wonder material, with many of these amazing breakthroughs that are arising from nanoscale science and engineering, there are also unintended consequences that need to be grappled with. In the year 2000, I published a scientific paper with a somewhat impenetrable title, A Simple Model of Axial Flow Cyclone Performance Under Laminar Flow Conditions. It was the culmination of two years' research into predicting the performance of a new type of airborne dust sampler. At the time, I was pretty excited by the mathematics and computer modelling involved, but despite the research in its publication, I suspect that the work never had much impact beyond adorning the pages of an esoteric scientific journal. Like many scientists... I was much more wrapped up in the scientific puzzles I was trying to untangle than in how relevant the work was to others. Certainly, I justified the research by saying it could lead to better ways of protecting workers from inhaling dangerous levels of dust. If I was honest, though, I was more interested in the science than its outcomes. At the same time, I was quite happy to co-opt a narrative of social good so that I could continue to satisfy my scientific curiosity. I suspect the same is true for many researchers, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Science progresses because some people are driven by their curiosity, their desire to discover new things, and to see what they can do with their new knowledge. While this is often inspired by making the world a better place or solving tough challenges, I suspect that it's the process of discovery or the thrill of making something that works that keeps many scientists and engineers going. This is actually why I ended up pursuing a career in science. From a young age, I wanted to do something that would improve people's lives. I was, admit, a bit of an earnest child. But my true love was physics. I was 
awestruck by the insights that physics provided into how the universe works, and I was utterly enthralled by how a grasp of the mathematics, laws and principles of physics opened up new ways of seeing the world. To me, physics was, and still is, a disciplined way of thinking and understanding that is both awe-inspiring and humbling, revealing the beauty and elegance of the universe we live in while making it very clear that we are little more than privileged observers in the grand scheme of things. It challenged me with irresistible puzzles and filled me with amazement as I made new discoveries in the process of trying to solve them. While I've always been mindful of the responsibility of science to serve society, I must confess that it's often the science itself that has been my deepest inspiration. Because of this, I have a bit of a soft spot for Sidney Stratton. This is someone who's in love with his science. He's captivated by the thrill of the scientific chase as he uses his knowledge to solve the puzzle of a stronger, more durable textile. And while he justifies his work in terms of how it will improve people's lives, I suspect that it's really the science that's driving him. Stratton is, in some ways, the epitome of the obsessed scientist. He captures the single-mindedness and the benevolent myopia I see in many of my peers and even in myself at times. He has a single driving purpose, which is synthesizing a new polymer that he is convinced it's possible to produce. He has a vague idea that this will be a good thing for society, and this is a large part of the narrative he uses to justify his work. But his concept of a social good is indistinct and rather naive. We see no indication, for instance, that he's ever considered learning about the people he's trying to help or even asking them what they want. Instead, he is ignorant of the people he claims he's working for. Rather than genuinely working with them, he ends up appropriating them as a convenient justification for doing what he wants. Not that Stratton wants to cause any harm. Far from it. His intentions are quite well-meaning. And I suspect if he was interviewed about his work, he'd spin a tale about the need for science to make the world a better place. Yet he suffers from social myopia in that he is seemingly incapable of recognising the broader implications of his work. As a result, he's blindsided when the industrialists he thought would lap up his invention want to suppress it. Real-life scientists are, not surprisingly, far more complex. Yet elements of this type of behaviour are not that uncommon, and they're not just limited to researchers. Some years back, I taught a graduate course in entrepreneurial ethics. The class was designed for engineers with aspirations to launch their own startup. Each year, we'd start the course talking about values and aspirations, and with very few exceptions, my students would say that they wanted to make the world a better place. Yes, they were committed to the technologies they were developing and to their commercial success, but they ultimately wanted to use these to help other people. I then had them take part in an exercise where their task was to make as much profit from their classmates as possible by creating and selling a piece of art. Each student started with a somewhat random set of raw materials to make their art from, together with a wad of fake money to purchase art that they liked from others in the class. There were basically no rules to the exercise beyond doing whatever it took to end up with the most money. As an incentive, the winner got a $25 Starbucks voucher. Every year I ran this, some students found ethically 
inventive ways to get that Starbucks card. And this is, remember, after expressing their commitment to improving other people's lives. Even though this was a game, it didn't take much for participants' values to fly out of the window in pursuit of personal gain. One year, an enterprising student formed a consortium that was intended to prevent anyone outside it from winning the exercise, regardless of the creation of any art. They claimed the consortium agreement was their art. Another year, a student realised they could become an instant millionaire by photocopying the fake money, then using this to purchase their own art, thus winning the prize. In both of these examples, students who were either too unimaginative or too ethical to indulge in such behaviour were morally outraged. How could their peers devolve so rapidly into ethically questionable behaviour? Yet the exercise was set up to bring out exactly this type of behaviour and to illustrate how hard it is to translate good intentions into good actions. Each year, the exercise demonstrated just how rapidly a general commitment to the good of society or the group disintegrated into self-interest when participants weren't self-aware enough or socially aware enough to understand the consequences of their actions. A similar tendency towards general benevolence and specific self-interest is often seen in science and is reflected in what we see in Stratton's behaviour. Most scientists, including engineers and technologists I've met and worked with, want to improve and enrich other people's lives. They have what I believe is a genuine commitment to serving the public good in most cases. And they freely and openly use this to justify their work. Yet surprisingly few of them stop to think about what the public good means, or to ask others for their opinions and ideas. Because of this, there's a tendency for them to assume they know what's good for others, irrespective of whether they're right or not. As a result, too many well-meaning scientists presume to know what society needs without thinking to ask first. This is precisely what we see playing out with Stratton in The Man in the White Suit. He firmly believes that his new polymer will make the world a better place. Who wouldn't want clothes that never get dirty and never need washing, that never need replacing? Yet at no point does Stratton show the self-reflection, the social awareness, the humility, or even the social curiosity to ask people what they think and what they want. If he had, he might have realised that his invention could spell economic ruin and lost jobs for a lot of people, together with social benefits that were transitory at best. It might not have curbed his enthusiasm for his research, but it might have helped him see how to work with others to make it better. Of course, modern scientists and technologists are more sophisticated than Stratton. Yet time after time, I run into scientists who claim almost in the same breath, that they're committed to improving the lives of others, but that they have no interest in listening to these people they are supposedly committing themselves to. This was brought home to me some years ago when I was advising the US President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, or PCAST, on the safe and beneficial development of nanotechnology. In one meeting, I pushed the point that scientists need to be engaging with members of the public if they want to ensure that their work leads to products that are trusted and useful. In response, a very prominent scientist in the field replied rather tritely, that sounds like a very bad idea. 
I suspect that this particular scientist was thinking about the horrors of a presumed scientifically illiterate public telling him how to do his research. Of course, he would be right to be horrified if he were expected to take scientific direction from people who aren't experts in his particular field. But most people have a pretty high level of expertise in what's important to them and their communities, and rather than expect members of the public to direct complex research, it's this expertise that is important to use in guiding research and development if naive mistakes are to be avoided. The reality here is that scientists and technologists don't have a monopoly on expertise and insights. For new technologies to have a positive impact in a messy world of people, politics, beliefs, values, economics, and a plethora of other interests, scientists and others need to be a part of larger conversations around how to draw on expertise that spans all of these areas and more. Not being a part of such conversations leads to scientific elitism and ignorance that's shrouded in arrogance. Of course, there's nothing wrong with scientists doing their science for science's sake, but willful ignorance of the broader context that research is conducted within leads to myopia that can ultimately be harmful, despite the best of intentions. Some time ago, I was at a meeting where an irate scientist turned to a room of policy experts and exclaimed, I'm a scientist, just stop telling me how to do my job and let me get on with it. I know what I'm doing. The setting was a National Academy of Sciences workshop on planetary protection, and we were grappling with the challenges of exploring other worlds without contaminating them, or worse, bringing virulent alien bugs back to Earth. As it turns out, this is a surprisingly tough issue. Fail to remove all Earth-based biological contamination from a spacecraft and the instruments it carries, and you risk permanently contaminating the planet or moon you're exploring, making it impossible to distinguish what's truly alien from what's not. But make the anti-contamination requirements too stringent, and you make it next to impossible to search for extraterrestrial life in the first place. There are similar problems with return samples. Play fast and loose with safety precautions, and we could end up unleashing a deadly alien epidemic on Earth, although, to be honest, this is more science fiction than science likelihood. On the other hand, place a million and one barriers in the way of bringing samples back, and we kill off any chance of studying the biological origins of extraterrestrial life. To help tread this fine line, international regulations on planetary protection were established in 1967 to ensure we don't make a mess of things. These regulations mean that when an agency like NASA funds a mission, the scientists and engineers developing vehicles and equipment have to go through what to them is a bureaucratic nightmare to do the smallest thing. To space exploration scientists, this can feel a little like an imposed form of bureaucratic obsessive-compulsive disorder designed to send even the mildest-mannered person into a fit of pique. What makes it worse is that for scientists and engineers working on years-long missions designed to detect the signs of life elsewhere in the universe, they are deeply aware of what's at stake. If they get things wrong, decades of work and hundreds of millions of dollars, not to mention their scientific reputation, are put at risk. 
So they're pretty obsessive about getting things right even before the bureaucrats get involved. And what really winds them up, or some of them at least, is being told that they need to fill out yet more paperwork or redesign their equipment yet again because some bureaucrat decided to flex their planetary protection muscles. This frustration reached venting point in the National Academy meeting I was at. Speaking to a room of planetary protection experts, some of whom were directly involved in establishing and implementing current policies, the scientist couldn't contain his frustration. As the lead scientist on a critical mission to discover evidence of life beyond Earth, he knew what he had to do to be successful, or so he thought. And in his mind, the room of experts in front of him had no idea how ignorant they were about his expertise. He even started to lecture them in quite strong terms on policies that some of them had actually helped write. It probably wasn't a particularly smart move. I must confess that listening to his frustrations, I had quite a bit of sympathy for him. He was clearly good at what he does, and he just wanted to get on with it. But he made two fatal errors. He forgot that science never happens in a vacuum, and he deeply underestimated the inertia of the status quo. This anecdote may seem somewhat removed from nanotechnology, synthetic chemistry, and the man in the white suit. Yet there are a surprising number of similarities between this interplanetary scientist and Sidney Stratton. Both were brilliant scientists. Both believe they have the knowledge and ability to deliver what they promise. Both would like nothing better than to be left alone to do their stuff. And neither is aware of the broader social context within which they operate. The harsh reality is that discovery never happens in isolation. There are always others with a stake in the game, and there's always someone else who is potentially impacted by what transpires. This is the lesson that John Hammond was brutally reminded of in Jurassic Park in Chapter 2. It underpins the technological tensions in Transcendence in Chapter 9, and it's something that Sidney wakes up to rather abruptly as he discovers that not everyone shares his views. Here, the man in the white suit has overtones of Luddism, with workers and industry leaders striving to maintain the status quo regardless of how good or bad it is. Yet, just as the Luddite movement was more nuanced than simply being anti-technology, here we see that the resistance to Sydney's discovery is not a resistance to the technology innovation, but a fight against something that threatens what is deeply important to the people who are resisting it. The characters in the movie aren't Luddites in the pejorative sense, and they are not scientifically illiterate. Rather, they are all too able to understand the implications of the technology that Sydney is developing. As they put the pieces together, they realise that in order to protect the lives they have, they have to act. Just as in the meeting on planetary protection, what emerges in The Man in the White Suit is a situation where everyone is shrewd enough to see how change supports or threatens what they value, and they fight to protect this value. As a result, no one really wins. Sure, the factory owners and workers win a short reprieve against the march of innovation, and they get to keep things going as they were before. But all this does is rob them of the ability to adapt to inevitable change in ways that could benefit everyone. And of course, Sidney suffers a humiliating defeat at the hands of those he naively thought he was helping. 
What the movie captures so well as it ends, and one of the reasons it's in this book, is that there is nothing inherently bad about Sydney's technology. On the contrary, it's a breakthrough that could lead to tremendous benefits for many people, just like the nanotechnology it foreshadows. Rather, it's the way that it's handled that causes problems. As with every disruptive innovation, Sydney's new textile threatened the status quo. Naturally, there were going to be hurdles to its successful development and use, and not being aware of those hurdles created risks that could otherwise be avoided. Self-preservation and short-sightedness ended up leading to social and economic benefits being dashed against the rocks of preserving the status quo. But things could have been very different. What if the main characters had been more aware of the broader picture? What if they'd bothered to talk to others and find out about their concerns and aspirations? And what if they had collectively worked towards a way forward that benefited everyone? Admittedly, it would have led to a rather boring movie, but from the perspective of beneficial and responsible innovation, the future could have looked a whole lot brighter. Not so long ago at a meeting about AI, I had a conversation with a senior company executive about the potential downsides of the technology. He admitted that AI has some serious risks associated with it if we get it wrong, so much so that he was worried about the impact it would have if it got out of hand. Yet when pushed, he shied away from any suggestion of talking with people who might be impacted by the technology. Why? because he was afraid that misunderstandings resulting from such engagement would lead to a backlash against the technology and, as a result, place roadblocks in the way of its development that he felt society could ill afford. It was a perfect example of a let's-not-talk approach to technological innovation and one that, as Sidney Stratton discovered to his cost, rarely works. The irony here is that it's the misunderstanding and miscommunication from not talking, or to be precise, not listening and engaging, that makes the man in the white suit a successful comedy. As the audience, we're privy to a whole slew of comedic misunderstandings and resulting farcical situations that could have been avoided if the characters had simply taken the time to sit down with each other. From the privileged positions of our armchairs, this all makes perfect sense. But things are rarely so obvious in the real-world rough-and-tumble of technology innovation. To many technology developers, following a let's-not-talk strategy makes quite a bit of sense on the surface. If we're being honest, people do sometimes get the wrong end of the stick when it comes to new technologies, and there is a very real danger of consumers, policymakers, advocacy groups, journalists and others creating barriers to technological progress through their speculations about potential future outcomes. That said, there are serious problems with this way of thinking. For one thing, it's incredibly hard to keep things under wraps these days. The chances are that unless you're involved in military research or a long way from a marketable product, people are going to hear about what you're doing. And if you're not engaging with them, they'll form their own opinions about what your work means to them. As a result, staying quiet is an extremely high-risk strategy, especially as once people start to talk about your tech, they'll rapidly fill any information vacuum that exists, and not necessarily with stuff that makes sense. Perhaps just as importantly, keeping quiet may seem expedient, but it's not always ethical. If an emerging technology has the potential to cause harm or to disrupt lives and livelihoods, 
it's relevant to everyone it potentially touches. In this case, as a developer, you probably shouldn't have complete autonomy over deciding what you do or the freedom to ignore those whom your product potentially affects. Irrespective of the potential hurdles to development and profit that are caused by engaging with stakeholders, meaning anyone who potentially stands to gain or lose by what you do, there's a moral imperative to engage broadly when the technology has potential to impact society significantly. On top of this, developers of new technologies rarely have the fullest possible insight into how to develop their technology beneficially and responsibly. All of us, it has to be said, have a bit of Sidney Stratton in us and are liable to make bad judgment calls without realising it. Often the only way to overcome this is to engage with others who bring a different perspective and set of values to the table. In other words, it's good to talk when it comes to developing impactful new technologies. Or rather, it's good to listen and to engage with others and to explore mutually beneficial ways of developing technologies that benefit both their investors and society more broadly, and that don't do more harm than good. Yet this is easier said than done, and there are risks. My AI executive was right to be concerned about engaging with people because sometimes people don't like what they hear and they decide to make your life difficult as a result. Yet there's also a deep risk to holding back and not talking, and in the long run this is usually the larger of the two. Talking is tough, but not talking is potentially more dangerous. One way that people have tried to get around this toughness is a process called the Danish Consensus Conference. This is an approach that takes a small group of people from different backgrounds and perspectives and provides an environment where they can learn about an issue and its consequences before exploring productive ways forward. The power of the Danish Consensus Conference is that it gets people talking and listening to each other in a constructive and informed way. Done right, it overcomes many of the challenges of people not understanding an issue and reverting to protecting their interest out of ignorance. But it does have its limitations. And one of the biggest is that very few people have the time to go through such a time-consuming process. This gets to the heart of perhaps the biggest challenge in public engagement around emerging technologies. Most people are too busy working all hours to put food on the table and a roof over their heads or caring for family or simply surviving to have the time and energy for somewhat abstract conversations about seemingly esoteric technologies. There's simply not enough perceived value to them to engage. So how do we square the circle here? How do we ensure that the relevant people are at the table when deciding how new technologies are developed and used so we don't end up in a farcical mess? Especially as we live in a world where everyone's busy and the technologies we're developing together with their potential impacts are increasingly complex. The rather frustrating answer is that there's no simple answer here. However, a range of approaches is emerging that together may be able to move things along at least a bit. Despite being cumbersome, the Danish Consensus Conference remains relevant here, as do similar processes such as Expert and Citizen Assessment of Science and Technology, or ECAST. But there are many more formal and informal ways in which people with different perspectives and insights can begin to talk and listen and engage around emerging technologies. These include the growing range of opportunities that social media provides for peer-to-peer -peer engagement, with the caveat, of course, that social media can shut down engagement as well as open it up. 
They also include using venues and opportunities such as science museums, TED Talks, science cafes, poetry slams, citizen science, and a whole cornucopia of other platforms. The good news is that there are more ways than ever for people to engage around developing responsible and beneficial technologies and to talk with each other about what excites them and what concerns them. And with platforms like Wikipedia, YouTube, and other ways of getting content online, it's never been easier to come up to speed with what a technology is and what it might do. All that's lacking is the will and imagination of experts to use these platforms to facilitate effective engagement around the responsible and beneficial development of new technologies. Here, there are tremendous opportunities for entrepreneurially and socially minded innovators to meet people where they're at, in and on the many venues and platforms they inhabit, and to nudge conversations toward a more inclusive, informed and responsible dialogue around emerging technologies. Making progress on this front could help foster more constructive discussions around the beneficial and responsible development of new technologies. It would, however, mean people being willing to concede that they don't have the last word on what's right, and being open to not only listening to others, but changing their perspective based on this. This goes for the scientists as well as everyone else, because while scientists may understand the technical intricacies of what they do, just like Sidney Stratton, they are often not equally knowledgeable about the broader social implications of their work, as we'll see the chilling effect in our next movie, Inferno. The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard.